they all think you're, you're deaf and dumb. Jesus Christ. <laughs> you fooled them, Chief. You fooled them. You fooled them all. If you're traveling to the North Country Fair. From Tuscaloosa, Alabama, this is Aspect Radio. I'm Corey Kraft. And I'm Ben Flanagan. Welcome to the show. Before we dive into the latest from David O. Russell and our most anticipated movies of 2013, Corey, we got some movie news today that we just can't ignore at the top of the show. The Rap and The Hollywood Reporter reported this afternoon that J.J. Abrams will direct the next Star Wars film for Disney. Of course, last October, the Walt Disney Company bought Lucasfilm for reported $4.05 billion in cash and stock. Disney also announced that it would release a new Star Wars movie in 2015, and it looks like Abrams is the guy to take over for George Lucas. So that's one item. The other, Corey is that we, rather unexpectedly today, got a trailer for a brand new Joel and Ethan Cohen movie. How you doing? Lewin Davis. Oh, hello. I've heard your music. And heard many nice things about you from Jim and Gene and from others. <laughs> you have not heard one nice thing about me from Gene. Oh, it's fairly well, my darling true. I'm leaving in the first hour of the morning. No, you don't want to go anywhere. And that's why all the same shit is going to keep happening to you because you want it to. Is that why? Yes, and also because you're an asshole. I'll be the coast of California. So it's fairly well. What'd you say you played? Folk songs. Folk songs. But you said you were a musician. Inside Lewin Davis, a film about the 1960s New York folk music scene. Now, it might seem obvious, this answer, but which was the bigger story for you? <laughs> I mean, I knew that the Coen brothers had a new movie coming out, and I knew what it was about, so suffice to say, the news of J.J. Uh, Abrams hopping from one interplanetary franchise to another, from Star Trek to Star Wars, was the bigger surprise of the two, though I, I will say I was pretty pleased by that Coen brothers trailer, which uh, appears to be vintage Cohen, albeit with a different look, courtesy of cinematographer Bruno Del Bonnell stepping in for Roger Deakins, who I think was busy shooting Skyfall at the time. Plus, I mean, any movie that has that haircut on John Goodman is going to get me in the theater. That I mean, that just looks like a like a classic Cohen affectation. But yeah, I think I think that the world was a bit more rocked today by the Star Wars news, perhaps than the first look at the new Coen Brothers movie. I think the bigger news for me was the Coens movie. Really? Because I mean, it's, in terms of what I care about, maybe. Well, but that, well, that's what it's about, isn't it? How did you personally react to each news item? Personally, I was like, oh, yeah, okay, here's some footage for Inside Lewin Davis. And then for Star Wars, it kind of blew my mind, to be honest, because just, just on a business basis, the idea of J.J. Abrams jumping from Paramount slash the Star Trek franchise to Star Wars, meaning, you know, we're one step closer, as I said to you earlier, to the geek singularity. That's that's pretty that's pretty monumental stuff. I, I think would say. you said we're at threat level midnight for geeks right now, or geek yeah. level midnight, or something like threat that. Threat level midnight right. uh, for the geek singularity. That's good. 
sure, it's the bigger industry news, fine, but we knew that it was going to land in the hands of someone like Abrams. His name was even tossed around out there in the rap article and maybe the Hollywood Reporter report, too. It also mentioned that Ben Affleck was in contention for the directing job. Sure he was. But I didn't know that we were getting a new Cohen movie trailer today. I'm sure it would have come at some point, but mm-hmm. it just sort of surprised me. Well, it doesn't have a distributor yet. It was known that it was in the can. It was basically mm-hmm. finished. It was not known until today that they were going to start screening it as soon as next month. I don't know if they're shopping it around to distributors yet or if they're going to go like a spring festival route via can can film festival. I don't think anybody really knows that yet. But, I mean, the Cohen brothers at this point could basically say jump and get, you know, four or five major distributors to say how high uh, in response to it. You know, no matter what they make, these are guys who three of their last four films have gotten Best Picture nominations. And their last film was a bona fide blockbuster success, True Grit, in a genre that doesn't really have bona fide blockbuster successes anymore. This will not be that. Though. No, it will not. This looks like the Coen's working in a lower key, a serious man style vibe, but it looks like, again, like I said, classic Coen's, the sort of thing that, that a certain sector of the art house audience and critics will be all over themselves for, which is great. It's Coen's working in a minor key, but it's nevertheless pleasing. Uh, no, I don't think it's going to be a true grit level success by any means, right. but again... These guys have so much clout in the industry now that they're going to get a distributor and they're going to get a good deal for it. I'm sure the likes of Focus Features and Fox Searchlight will be knocking on their doors. Knocking on their doors already. Yeah, if the movie didn't look incredible to me, then I probably wouldn't consider it bigger news of the day personally. But I think that this looks like a straight-up Coen Brothers movie. And what's interesting is that they've taken a virtual unknown in Oscar Isaac and thrust him at the forefront of this film. He's the titular character here, playing this folk musician who is reportedly loosely based on this guy named Dave Van Ronk, who I'm sure folk enthusiasts will know by name, but I think a lot of people will become familiar with him through this movie. But you've seen this guy in Drive, he was in Robin Hood, and he's been in a handful of other movies, Oscar Isaac. So it's interesting to see him get this kind of leading man treatment. But the rest of the cast looks great. It's got Carey Mulligan, like you said, the Cohen favorite. John Goodman, F. Murray Abraham is in this. In an awesome turtleneck. But the photography looks amazing, even though it's not one of their regular guys. It still looks like, again, the same brand that we're used to. So I'm super pumped about this, and we'll probably get into it a little bit later when we talk about our most anticipated of 2013. But let's just say, as of today, I made some major adjustments to that list Uh so exciting stuff but as for 2012 we're still not quite done with it we're going to take a look now at david o russell's latest movie silver linings playbook which is finally playing in wide release and in tuscaloosa at the cop hollywood 16 it took it a while to get going but it seems like this release platform that the weinstein company stuck to is benefiting this movie now as it's nominated for what eight eight academy Academy Awards. awards and it looks like it's in prime position to build up enough buzz and box office success to make a run for the big prize and regardless of all that even though it's nominated for eight oscars david o russell is coming off a very successful character 
study drama, The Fighter, released in 2010, which was also a Best Picture nominee and even won two Acting Academy Awards for Christian Bale and Melissa Leo. We're sort of in the same ballpark here with Silver Linings Playbook, where you have this character study of sorts. This time he shifts from sort of this drama set in Boston suburbs and has switched over to Philadelphia, this small neighborhood in Philadelphia where he focuses on this middle class family and some of the folks who are in the family and around it who are affected by bipolar disorder, namely Bradley Cooper's character. And he meets Jennifer Lawrence, who suffers from similar personality disorders, and he just has a few hang-ups. And it's about their relationship that buds once he gets out of a mental hospital. So I have to ask you, now that I've seen your top ten list of the year, which you released today, I know how you feel about this movie based on what you've said about Cooper and some of the other performances in reaction to the Oscar nominations being announced. But now that we have both seen the movie, just sort of let it off your chest now, how much do you like Silver Linings Playbook? Yeah, I mean, I love it. I've, I've loved it since I saw this movie in October of last year at the New Orleans Film Festival, came back and sort of sung its praises through an aborted wide release around Thanksgiving and through the uncertain platforming that the film received throughout the month of December and into January. I've been talking it up to pretty much everybody who would listen ever since I saw the film. And, well, I'm glad that it has sort of gotten the acclaim that it has I, and, and it's sort of a claim that I knew it would given its its crowd pleasing qualities and, and, and it's just generally amiable nature. I mean, it's probably I guess not the most popular film with a lot of critics who are more serious minded going into the Academy Awards uh, and it's certainly not my favorite of the Best Picture nominees, again as I revealed today, but you know as far as, as romantic comedies go, this is one of the fresher and more original examples of that genre that I think we've seen in quite, quite some time thanks to David O. Russell's slightly askew look at things his his sharp and smart screenplay and you know some really excellent really really excellent performances from virtually everybody in his cast on down to you know the smaller supporting roles you've got people like john ortiz shea wiggum julia styles in these smaller roles and, and on up to bradley cooper and jennifer lawrence who i think deserve all the attention that they're getting and and to get a really nuanced and really uh heartfelt performance from robert de niro of all people at this point in his career after a lot of people have written him off i think is is no small feat you know this is his first Academy Award nomination in 21 years, since 1991, since Cape Fear, and just that is worth seeing this film for, but the fact of the matter is this film has so much going for it, both as this really warm and inviting feel-good film, and as a character study of, of people with hang-ups that they have to learn to get past and get over and, and, and sort of heal one another and sort of make it through the world. It's, it's really just a, a really excellent story, really excellently told. Well, as you know, I've been sort of vigorously rooting against this movie, even when I hadn't seen it. There's just a certain kind of buzz that builds around certain movies this time of year that really rubs me the wrong way. Uh -huh. And I felt that type of buzz was surrounding Silver Linings Playbook heading into this season. There was just something about it I just didn't like when I looked at the, the way it looked at me. I just didn't <laughs> like the way this movie looked at me. But I think you'll be pleased to know I really like the movie. That's good. And I, I sort of responded to it in a similar way to how I did the fighter back then it's just one of these movies that you really kind of can't help but like yeah it's a crowd pleaser like you said and it's just something that was just totally engineered to make you feel good and it is incredibly successful at doing that but 
Crowd pleasers like The Proposal or The Blind Side in other Sandra Bullock movies, for that matter, <laughs> they make me feel good, too. You know what I mean? Right. What really starts out as a pretty gritty character study about people with bipolar disorder, framed in a way that we saw in The Fighter, I think that it hits a bit of a wall in the second half. Mm. And it dissolves into a pretty by-the-numbers romantic comedy. And that's not to say that it's an entirely bad thing, because again, by the end of this movie, you're cheering, and you feel good about it, and you walk out of it thinking, I saw a really strong movie that you know made me feel good about sitting in a movie theater this time of year and I don't mind good things happening to it or good things being said about it in fact I'm in the camp but I think it was building towards a better film earlier on than what resulted by the end of it and there's a certain sequence the movie reaches when all sorts of betting starts happening yeah. in the household of this family and I think that that's where the movie makes its turnaround and becomes this very predictable by the numbers movie would you agree with that i see what you're saying for some reason the movie built up such goodwill and and such a head of steam by that point you know i i don't really see being by the numbers or being formulaic as negative particularly since the film spells out pretty much from the get-go where it's going and what direction it's going to take and what its sort of outlook on the world is and quite frankly by that point in the film you've had this character played by bradley cooper who who's gone through this rough time, who's had to deal with the disillusion of his marriage and his own mental health issues. And by that point in the film, he has basically gotten past his stuff and is taking the first steps outside of his own head to do things not only for himself and for his relationship, but to help out his family and to help out the people he cares about. And for the movie to sort of take the turn that it does and to have Cooper's character step up and, and be, you know, a man and be the sort of guy who can who can actually get past his own selfishness and, and his own sort of myopic quest. You know, I don't mind that it takes the formulaic route that it does because, you know, I'm caught up in that character, the character's journey and the journey of all of the other characters. And plus, by that point, you've reached this point that David O. Russell reaches in most of his films where he's amassed this really funny ensemble of characters and for whatever reason he tends to put them all in the same room you know i'm thinking of the climax of flirting with disaster where like for some reason every single character that ben stiller's characters run into on this road trip all they all end up at the same house of his parents and all sorts of madcap insanity happens and and while i don't think that the, you know this movie goes towards the same absurdist heights there's still something you know pretty wildly funny to me about this this ensemble group of characters coming together for something like this that yeah is is you know it's a movie thing and it's not tremendously plausible but you know at the same time the you know, stakes are still kept pretty low uh, as to what they have to accomplish and uh, there's something I mean there's something just amiable about that that I don't mind yeah the stakes are extremely low by the end of the movie where you say Cooper has sort of overcome what he needs to overcome at that point when the stakes felt extremely high at least personally with that character and the breakthroughs that he needed to make and so once he's made those breakthroughs then your story kind of ends at that point I, and, see, and what, ha so. what happened just sort of felt tacked on and to the film's credit when he's presented with this monumental final moment of a challenge it doesn't really go the route that these romantic comedies would go 
Instead, his character does something that you might not think he would do. Mm -hmm. um, because, again, he's reached these breakthroughs. But Jennifer Lawrence's character is sort of reduced to this romantic comedy archetype who just becomes upset and runs out of the building and needs to be rescued by her knight in shining armor by the end of the movie. So we can have this sort of swell, golly gee, romantic comedy ending. And again, while it makes you feel all nice inside, and it is a very nice moment, it's not what I thought the film was building towards when it did build up all of that goodwill and develop these characters who were so interesting. This is the first time I've sort of liked Bradley Cooper in a movie since Wedding Crashers, mm -hmm. when I, where I think he showed this kind of promise, where he could play unhinged and unpredictable. And I'm saying that about Wedding Crashers, but I just thought the performance within that stupid movie was that good. And I think that we get that actor this time. And I think the rest of the cast does an outstanding job. Like, you mentioned Shea Wiggum. I didn't even know he was in the movie before I saw it. And, you know, I'm a big fan of Boardwalk Empire. Yeah. And I liked Take Shelter and thought he was good in that. And, yep. then, and he just pops up. And I think he's great. But there's this very severe moment which turns touching that he has when he just walks into the house or walks downstairs in the house and just really shows up. Bradley Cooper's character and Bradley Cooper has a great moment there and then from that point on Wiggum just becomes this sort of comedic background piece for the rest of the movie where he doesn't have nearly as much heft as he did up to that point and I think that sort of reflects the movie and I hate to use this sort of cheesy comparison in a in way to describe this movie but the movie itself is kind of bipolar in that way hmm. don't you think no you don't. No, I mean, I, I thought the movie was, you know, at least in the first half, at least as, as single-minded and focused on the main character, on Bradley Cooper's character, as, as he himself was. You know, it, it's not really about the larger group, the larger ensemble. I mean, you know, they get some interesting things to do, but, but yeah, they're, they're not really there with much weight, with the exception of Jennifer Lawrence's character who sort of intrudes herself into his space, you know, often without him wanting to and just becomes more and more of a presence, I think, as the film goes on. And, and I think, you know, if anything, it's just reflective of his mindset and his worldview of just being so focused on this this character of his wife who's not really even seen throughout much of the movie due to many factors, mostly a restraining order. It's just he's so, you know, for lack of a better term, self-centered and and sort of stuck in his own head that, that you know, he doesn't really emerge from it until later in the film. Nick and, and, and I think that... I think that's by design. The Nikki wife character in that way is sort of used as a MacGuffin yeah. in this movie, which is a really interesting thing I think Russell does. I'll say about the technical aspects of this movie. I think that Russell is doing a lot of interesting things with the camera here. Yeah, uh, I think it's some of the most interesting cinematography and editing in 2012. There's a lot of movement in it and other tricks, and they're used as storytelling devices instead of just these flashy tools that make the story seem more interesting. They actually make it more interesting. Well, it's very dynamic, and I think a lot of people just had this sort of knee-jerk, like, why the hell did that movie get a Best Editing nomination You know, when it got that nomination without having seen the movie? After seeing the movie, it's pretty clear why it did, because... You know, he just keeps the camera in motion and keeps, you know, like the scenes of movement, particularly in the climax of the film, so dynamic and so interesting by keeping the camera handheld and basically right up on everybody in motion there and, and just cutting and and just composing this 
the scene, uh, well, this dance sequence with clarity and a really interesting way of presenting it. Yeah, and there are flashbacks, too, in the movie that are shot and edited really well. Mm-hmm. And he just has these really interesting push-ins on characters, namely when he's visiting with this psychiatrist in the movie who shows up later and turns into a sort of a cartoon character himself later in Which the movie. Which I think is really funny. I mean, is is sort of a punchline. I don't know. He I plays Dr. Patel. He's really funny. <laughs> he's that. really good. I think he's really good in the early scenes. But again, they bump into him at this Philadelphia Eagles game while they're out tailgating in a really funny scene. Yeah. And he sort of becomes part of the family at that point. Yeah, I mean, that's the, you know, David O. Russell's sort of amassing of a yeah. larger ensemble and just having them all sort of run around down like hallways and, and, and whatnot. I to... think when you do that, though, you kind of reduce the characters and you sort of eliminate some of the heft that they had earlier in the movie. They become a little paper thin. And you talk about paper thin, and I saw this movie, and what's what was working against it going into it was knowing what it was nominated for no, so at the Oscars. Do, which I thought you were going to do. Well, it's a mystery to me as to why Jackie Weaver's nominated. I, I think she's really good in the first. She's fine in, in the first thirty minutes of the film. I think she's really good in the first thirty minutes. Of the she's film. okay, and then she does sort of fade into the background. Yeah, she makes homemades. I made homemades. Okay, we'll have an Oscar nomination. Why don't you do that? Then? I think she earned it. I think she's really okay. good. Okay. The Weinsteins have done a number on you then. Well, you know, I've got <laughs> I've got bills to pay, man. <laughs> right. Well, no, she is good, but Oscar, I don't know. I don't know. But okay, well what do you think about the other three acting nominations? Are they earned? I think Lawrence and Cooper are earned enough. Now, you know, for judging it by who they're who who they're currently equals to at this point. Mm-hmm. Who also have nominations? He's Cooper is good in this, but he's nowhere near the level of Joaquin Phoenix or Daniel Day Lewis. Well, I, I, I don't year. think so either, but I am totally fine with him being up there because I think I mean I think it's his best performance ever, and I think he's pretty great in it. It doesn't bother me as much as I thought it would. Come on, she's making crabby snacks and homemades. Come on, Dad. What are you What are you so up about? You're very happy. I'm happy. No, you're so up, 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 up. Isn't that a good thing? No, you just up, 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 up. I don't, I don't know what, what that is. Are you taking the proper dosage of your medication? Am I taking the right dose? Of course I am. Okay. Taking a little bit too many or something? Or... <laughs> no, if I was taking that, I'd be on the floor, Dad. De Niro finally sort of wakes up and acts again in this, and he has some nice moments, but again, it is sort of sleepy De Niro. Nah, I think he's better than that. Better? Okay. Yeah. I, I'm, f- I'm fine with that, but it's just, it's not... Robert De Niro, the guy we... Well, I mean, he's not playing Travis Bickle. He's playing, you know, an an elderly father. Yeah. He's, you know, a suburban football fan. Yeah. But, I mean, for that and for sort of doing the sort of socially acceptable mental illness thing... there's a sequence in it where... He gets emotional when he is sitting on a bed with Bradley Cooper, yeah. and there's and that's just something I didn't buy. At I all thought it was awesome in that movie. Didn't it was a buy really that. Really great at all. little quiet moment. I didn't. I didn't like it, but I thought that the scene where Bradley Cooper has this big major outburst up in his attic when he's looking for a videotape yeah. of his wedding. I think that's when De Niro was really solid, and Jackie Weaver too, and Cooper especially. That was probably his finest moment in the movie but something we should also know this movie has a really great soundtrack too mm-hmm. there are a lot of songs that david o russell uses extremely well the score too is nice and relatively unnoticeable i would say danny elfman yeah and he does a good job so again you can't really complain much about the the, the technical work done here russell knows what he's doing obviously and I, I do like sort of this groove that russell has hit as a filmmaker I've i've heard some interviews with him recently where he said before he made the fighter when he made 
I Heart Huckabees, he was in sort of like a creative funk where he was sort of overthinking his own creative process. And then you got this sort of mishmash movie, I Heart Huckabees, which is a fun movie, but it's just so all over the place. And now he's sort of turned to these more straightforward narratives, these these character-driven yeah. movies, <clears throat> where I think that this is probably the niche that really sort of suits him as a filmmaker because he takes these very simple stories in the hands of other people would just sort of drift by unnoticed, and he applies his skill, which is so unique as a writer and as a, a visual storyteller, and it just makes for a really wonderful marriage in storytelling, I think. I mean, I'm pretty much in the tank for this movie. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you knew it coming in. Uh, it, it's it's one of my favorite films of the year, uh-huh. just because I don't know. It's it's really easy to get swept up in, and and for whatever reason, like the you know, I hear what you're saying with the heft, I guess, sort of being reduced throughout this movie. But I but I guess I was less interested in in that sort of thing, and and just in this, I don't know, just getting caught up in this feel good story about. You know these people living up to their promise and and finding I don't know something good to to live for and just and sort of being able to find their own happy ending. I mean, like like I said, the movie tells you how it's going to end after uh, Bradley Cooper's character's outburst about farewell to arms. It's very possible that these characters will not end up later down the road having a happy ending because I don't think that. The film wraps up their issues in a neat little bow, particularly with Jennifer Lawrence's character. But but I think that it presents them the road towards being satisfied people and and shows the steps that they make toward that goal. And, and the fact of the matter is ending it where it ends and sort of wrapping it up the way it does. And it's just the sort of thing where I like what's presented so much and I like the characters so much that, that, I, that a formulaic happy ending or a formulaic Hollywood climax, it doesn't bother me because there's a reason that a formula is a formula. There's a reason that, you know, lesser filmmakers fall back on these tropes because they work. And to see these tropes seized upon by a filmmaker with such skill as David O. Russell, it it just reminds you why movies like this work as well as they do when they're done well. And, you know, you you bring up like you did at the beginning, examples like The Proposal and The Blind Side and untold Sandra Bullock romantic comedies or romantic comedies of any sort. And, you know, I, I really think that this film shows shows how it's done or how it should be done by crafting these characters that, that we care about and putting them in situations that we want to see good outcomes in. And, and it's it's just the sort of thing that it's really easy to, I don't know, to, to become quite taken with. Yeah, there's room out there for the romantic comedy done right. Right. And, and you know, when I first saw this movie, it was at a festival. It had gotten buzz out of Toronto, but it was not, you know, it was not an Oscar nominee. It was not the sort of movie that has the burden of expectation placed upon it by awards. And if anything, that's the problem with these nice little movies that come out of these festivals like The Artist, like The King's Speech, like all of these Weinstein workhorses or these awards horses that they distribute and they push and they push and they shove down everybody's throats, divorcing it from all of that. They're fine. They're really entertaining. They're really well made. There's a reason that they captured people's attention in the first place. But this process of awards, you know, as fun as it is and as as validating as it can be, 
to see your favorite movie get get attention and to see people that you like recognized for their good work you know what it does i think for a lot of people a lot of fans and a lot of people like us who who want to see these movies it just sort of places these expectations on these movies of being oscar worthy or you know being important because they were nominated for awards and in a movie like silver linings playbook which i value just for being itself and for being a really well-made romantic comedy i i feel like it doesn't really benefit from the hype you know the hype draws people to it but it doesn't really put the movie in the best context and so having seen it divorced from context i don't i don't know if that affects your viewing you know as much as it might somebody else's but at the same time it's like i, I don't know i mean just just I'm, I'm glad i saw it when i did because there's something about these movies that that i think I don't know that they suffer in comparison when when in, you know put in this horse race. I guess I think it benefited from the hype for me because really? the hype is what made me skeptical about it. The expectations were so high for it to be this movie that needs to be validated by Oscars and will win Oscars mm-hmm. and is something that has to be in the conversation as one of these major contenders. I got sick of that. And you do reach a point where you just want to see the movie and not care about that. So usually when I have such low expectations going into a movie like this, it does benefit from that. And if I do remove myself from it and just let those expectations go, I can sit there and objectively say, or subjectively obviously, say, this is a good movie. I can watch Silver Linings Playbook and feel good about myself saying that because I really do think it is. It's one of David O. Russell's better movies, right. too, in my opinion. So Yeah, I mean, I'm not taking it to task because you have problems with it because it's totally valid that you have problems with it. That's not really what I was, what I was trying to say. It's just, you know, sort of, I guess, my railing against the grinding of this awards machine that you get this fatigue every every time every you know this this time of year every year where it's like all right shut up and let's just see it and let's be done with this yeah but it's got to make you feel good that one of your favorite movies of the year is getting that validation yeah i mean it doesn't make me feel bad about that but you know at the same time it just got released in wide release last week i guess and 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 everybody's finally seeing it and i guess a lot of people really like it you know i've heard a lot more people say that they really enjoyed it than than didn't but it, you know at the same time it's like you know i wish that we could have had this conversation a couple months ago i guess i don't know i but would recommend divorced it, from uh, the, the the hype and divorced from all the chatter i'd recommend it to anybody somebody who watches movies yeah. a lot and then somebody who rarely goes to the movies and since there are so many out they have to choose what they are gonna see yeah. on that rare weekend where they finally get to see a movie i would say go see silver linings playbook you're going to like it yeah i mean my mom made a rare trip to the theater to see it she liked it you know my wife likes it a lot of my more serious-minded movie friends seem to really like it so it's i mean it's a likable movie it really it's it's the sort of thing that that i think a crowd pleaser i guess is the best way to describe it. it it just has that quality it just has that dynamic there's just I don't know. It's just, it's it's really nice. Well, go see it for yourselves, people. It's playing nationwide and in Tuscaloosa at the Cobb Hollywood 16. There's greatness in you. But there's not an ounce of humility. You think that you can't make mistakes, but there's going to come a moment when you realize you're wrong about that. And you're going to get yourself and everyone under your command killed. You think 
you're safe. You are not. Well, it is 2013, and even though we have yet to record our best of 2012 show, we are still not done with last year, and it's going to take maybe a couple more weeks. Even though Corey released his best of 2012 list today, yeah, it's online, which you can find at tus205.com and on the Facebook and on the Twitter, we're going to look ahead to 2013 now and talk about our most anticipated of the year. And this was a lengthy episode in 2012. There was a lot to look forward to last year, and I was sort of just rummaging through the calendars today trying to determine what it is I'm most excited about. And I can't say that I have the same enthusiasm looking ahead in 2013 that I did in 2012. It just seemed like we got a movie from every major director last year. And while some of those turned out to be great and some of them not so great, we still had a lot to look forward to. I'm just thinking of Prometheus, which I think was on my best of 2012, or my most anticipated of 2012 list. Yeah, it wasn't on your best of 2012. No, it was certainly was not on my best of 2012 and didn't come close. Well, let's take a look at 2013 because that guy who made that has one coming out this year. He sure does. I'll throw a couple of titles out there. Since we've already mentioned these filmmakers earlier in the show, I'll just go ahead and toss them out. I think my most anticipated right now today is Inside Lewin Davis by the Coen Brothers. And then another one is by the guy who's making the next Star Wars movie. It's the next Star Trek movie, Star Trek Into Darkness, directed by J.J. Abrams. I really loved the 2009 Star Trek movie that he made. It's one that I happily revisit every so often. Looks great on Blu-ray. He did a fantastic job with it. Can't wait to see the next movie. And I think the trailers indicate another pretty good movie. Yeah, it looks pretty awesome. Certainly um, seems to indicate that we're we're back in um, blockbuster. I don't know. Abrams doing blockbusters, and and I was a big fan of the two thousand nine Star Trek reboot too. So that that does look like a lot of fun. Probably not my most anticipated summer blockbuster, which I'll get to in a minute. But of course, the Coen Brothers. Anytime the Coen Brothers make a movie. It's one of my most anticipated. It was probably actually on my most anticipated 2012 list back when it looked like that was coming out last year. But now that it appears to actually be finished, definitely, definitely on my list. Now, you've paid a little closer attention to the Sundance Film Festival than I have lately. I've seen a few of the titles that have popped up, and it looks like there are several interesting movies that are going to come out of there, and I'm sure we'll hear a lot more about them later in the year. But do any sort of stand out to you? Well, three stand out to me. The first is a film that will be released uh, in limited release on March 1st. That is uh, Stoker from director Park Chan-wook. He's the director of Old Boy and making his uh, English language film debut in this uh, what looks like a pretty macabre thriller starring Nicole Kidman, Matthew Good, and uh, Mia Wasikowska. The trailer looks like a whole bunch of uh, nasty fun, so I'm looking forward to that. Even the word out of Sundance was, you know, mixed leaning positive and then on the far more esoteric side of the scale shane carruth is following up his 2004 mindbender 
primer this year with a seemingly um, equally mind-bending romantic sci-fi thriller called Upstream Color, which will be self-distributed in April, and hopefully, I'm keeping my fingers crossed for a VOD release for that. Finally, and I have a feeling you're going to be, you're pretty into this too, nine years removed from 2004's sequel Before Sunset, Richard Linklater, Ethan Hawke, and Julie Delpy return for Before Midnight, the capper on their trilogy following Jesse and Celine and their romantic history over the course of a few decades. I mean, I can't think of anything that I'm more excited about, to be honest. That's speaking my language, especially since I think Before Sunset is my favorite Richard Linklater movie. I love those movies, Before Sunrise especially. I prefer it to that, even though Before Sunset is great on its own. But I'm super pumped for this. I didn't anticipate that they would make a third one. I thought the story was, despite the open-ended ending, I thought the story was pretty much told. But it's just great that this is the kind of sequel that can be made. And I remember when the second one came out, and we were in the midst of all these other big, loud sequels that we didn't necessarily want. And here comes Before Sunset to revisit Jesse and Celine, and it just really sort of threw me for a loop that, oh yeah, you can go back to these smaller films and make sequels from these as well. So the fact that they're telling another chapter in the story, is it's really wonderful to me so i'll certainly be there if if it comes to birmingham or if i have to wait for dvd whatever i'll be greatly anticipating it now you mentioned park chan wook and there's a movie i want to toss out there since you mentioned him you said he was the director of old boy which i'm sort of lukewarm on that movie just made me feel horrible about myself i love when i saw it but i mean stylistically you can't really argue with it it's really good and it's just a very interesting tale of revenge told in a way that only he can tell it but spike lee is remaking this for American audiences. And while I would normally sort of turn my nose up to it, like I would a lot of American remakes of these stories, I just saw Django Unchained, and it just totally renewed my faith in Samuel Jackson as an actor. And the fact that he's in this movie... I didn't know he was in it. I read that he was. Maybe that's wrong, but I read that he was. But the fact that he's in this, that has me excited. Yeah, I mean, the fact that you've got some of these folks in the cast, that's extremely exciting to me. And Samuel Jackson working with a serious director like Spike Lee, who hasn't done his best work in recent years, I'll still give it a shot just because I did like, I think, the concept more than the follow-through of the original Old Boy, and it's just going to be interesting to see how someone else tells this story. I don't know. We'll see. If, if in fact, Samuel Jackson is in this movie, which has been reported, it says on IMDb that he is. I wonder who he's playing, then. It, the character's name is Chaney, hmm. but I don't know how it'll translate. Yeah, and I don't know how significant of a role that's going to be, but... Uh, well... Let's, yeah, bring it on. Why not? So, yeah, I'm into that, I guess, today, now that I just saw that he was in it. And again, he delivered one of my favorite performances of 2012. But let me just go down the list, and some of mine is fairly chronological, I guess. One that opens in uh, about a week or two, it's the new film from Steven Soderbergh, Side Effects, starring... uh, Last Before Retirement, by all accounts. There's last last feature, released. right? Last theatrically released right. feature. Okay. Starring Rooney Mara. I'm a big fan of hers. I liked yeah. what she did in The Social Network, and I loved what she did in Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And the fact that he's 
reteaming with the writer with whom he brought my favorite film of 2011 in Contagion. I'm super pumped about this. If they're going to be giving the same similar treatment that they gave to disease control into this epidemic that spread to pharmaceutical companies, that just sounds awesome to me. And I love what I've seen in the trailers. Regardless of the fact that Channing Tatum is in this movie, it's still high atop my list. After the year he had, you're not going to give him the benefit of a doubt. No. <laughs> no. All right. <laughs> he's still Channing Tatum to me. Yeah, but he's, he's really good. He's in a slight two movies last year. He's like a slightly more tolerable version of Channing Tatum. Now. Really good in Magic Mike, really good in 21 Jumps. Pretty good in Haywire too. Yeah, that's right. I so. forgot about, See, I even forgot about that. So that's three movies. Yeah. So, so you know, get past your thing. Join the rest of us. Uh, I don't think I'll now be. Now that Channing Tatum's on the the A-list apparently. Are you pumped about it? Yeah, of course. I mean, Soderbergh. I mean, you know, his name attached to anything will get me in a theater. Totally, and Jude Law looks very smarmy in it, too. And The Invisible Woman the past few years, Catherine Zeta-Jones, seems to have a fairly significant role in the movie. um, She she has a role in The Invisible Movie, Broken City, that is apparently out now that nobody's seen. Oh, God. Yeah, I think we're going to skip that one on this show. I'll check it out. You know, this is a little bit further ahead. Should be getting some sort of limited release starting in in maybe March, maybe late March, maybe April. It hasn't really been firmed up by its distributor, Magnolia Pictures. You know, they're known for their VOD distribution, but something tells me that this might be best seen on the big screen. I'm talking about Terrence Malick's new film, To the Wonder, which premiered at last year's Toronto Film Festival. What is apparently a more, I don't know, difficult to describe film than even the tree of life more experimental in form about a modern day love triangle starring um Ben Affleck, Rachel McAdams, and Olga Kurilenko, also featuring Javier Bardem. I'm sure that it's filled with shots of nature and voiceover and all of the things that we've come to expect from Terrence Malick, but that's why I love him and why I can't wait to see this. Well, you got all these reactions to it. What festival did it play at Toronto where... People complained about it in some negative reviews. It did have some positive, but in some of the negative reviews, the way they described it was how you just sort of described it. It sounded just like a Terrence Malick right. movie. It's like, what, what are you going in? What are you, what are you expecting to see? Exactly. And so that honestly just made me more pumped for it, yeah. the, the negative stuff. There's, just, I mean, there's a trailer now, too, and it's amazing. Yeah, it is. It's really cool. It, lo- it looks like a Terrence Malick movie. Yep. It looks great. So. I can't wait for it either, and you mentioned that it could have a VOD release, and another one that I anticipate probably will is the next movie from Nicholas Winding Refn, Only God Forgives, and we got a bit of a taste in the form of a teaser online for that recently, and it stars Ryan Gosling. It takes place in Thailand. It involves bare-knuckle fighting, supposedly illegal kickboxing matches or something of that nature, so... That just sounds all sorts of awesome yeah, to me. Yeah, it does. So can't wait. I mean, this is going to be his follow-up to Drive, which we both loved. And I'll watch anything Nicholas Winning Refn makes. I think I probably will, too. I guess heading into the summer months, there are two pretty big tentpole releases that I'm looking forward to, both from Warner Brothers. The first is um, called Man of Steel. It's Zack Snyder's reboot or reimagining or whatever of the Superman mythos. Bring that character with who's been sort of much maligned, I think, particularly with 2006's unsuccessful attempt to bring him back to the big screen, Superman Returns. But Snyder, first 
and foremost a visual director, somebody who knows how to craft an appealing-looking action sequence. And Snyder looks to finally get Superman out of the Richard Donner 70s era, you know, where that character was mired by sort of bringing the the you know the high-flying, super-strong Superman back to the big screen in the way that modern technology can most suit that character. And with Christopher Nolan producing and bringing some of his gravitas apparently to the picture if the trailers are to be believed i think this could be really special it looks pretty pretty terrific i hope so and while i'm a fan of superman just the character in general i just challenge these directors to make him interesting in a movie well i i am a fan of superman returns which i i liked a lot even in a summer where everybody that was everybody's favorite punching bag well Uh, it's not that bad no, it, it really it really isn't. And, I, and I, I found a lot to enjoy in that movie. But yes, there is a way, I think, to make that character more relevant to contemporary audiences than Superman Returns, which appeared most into providing a nostalgic kick back to the Donner films, which is fine because I love those movies. And, and a nostalgia kick was pretty satisfying for me. But nothing in Superman Returns seems as satisfying as even the brief glimpses that we've gotten in these teaser trailers of Superman and... And even, you know, Clark Kent at home with his his adopted parents who are here played by Diane Lane and Kevin Costner. Uh, it looks like Snyder's stacking the deck. And while we haven't really gotten a glimpse at the, at the sort of large scale action that the film will no doubt provide, something about this seems pretty, pretty satisfying to me already. The second one also comes out this summer and is, well, the first film from Guillermo del Toro since 2008, uh, Pacific Rim. Del Toro making any sort of movie is worthy of anticipation enough, but the fact that he's making a movie that features giant monsters emerging from the ocean that have to be combated by giant robots built by a humanity uh, that's sort of scrambling to fight back against this threat it has me thrilled to see what unhinged Guillermo del Toro given 250 million dollars will come up with I actually just pulled that number out of my ass I don't know how much it actually costs but it looks expensive it does and (laughs) And it looks awesome it looks really awesome yeah that's just one of those movies that you just sort of visualize in your head when you're like six years old yeah as a six year I want to see that Voltron type Transformers movie and even if this isn't based on any sort of property that i know of no this is completely original right which is which is in itself pretty exciting yeah exactly so yeah i'm there for sure and it has an interesting cast itself speaking of warner brothers and speaking of tent poles i'm just gonna go ahead and toss it out there even though it opens in december i can't wait for the next hobbit of course yeah so that's on my list of yeah, most anticipated definitely super pumped about that another summer movie i'm pretty sure this is a summer release the next anchorman december really yep oh they start filming it in march <laughs> so well I can't pretty quick. Yeah, Anchorman was my favorite comedy of the last decade. And yeah, even though it's a sequel, it's just good to see Will Ferrell returning to this character. And hopefully he can be as funny again as he was in that movie and hasn't been since that movie. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Okay. Uh, not as funny. Are you a bigger fan of Land of the Lost than I thought you were? I might be a bigger fan of Step Brothers. Oh, well, okay. Step Brothers is great. It is great, and it's it's about on that level, but Anchorman is the gold standard. Yeah, I, I'm I not going to disagree. I mean, I'm always a little hesitant about comedy sequels, particularly comedy sequels that come nine years after the original, but it's the same team of people. They've, they've been consistently funny, if not as funny, since Anchorman, 
And it's just the sort of thing that it feels it feels right. Well, and know? they've been trying to get it made too, and yeah. uh, faced some just staggering, unbe- unbelievable, unbelievable hurdles. Yeah. yeah. But would you rather a movie like this take nine years to get made, painstakingly made with a lot of heart, or would you rather see something like The Hangover Two, which is turned around in a weekend and well, crapped sure out of a studio? It, you know, at least two weeks they had to travel to. Right. Thailand to do right. it. No, I'd rather see Anchorman 2. And hopefully Anchorman 2 will remind people how overrated something like The Hangover was in the first place. Well, The Hangover Part 3 comes out this summer. Maybe that'll do it itself. Ugh. From Shane Black, Iron Man 3. Yeah, you know, I, that probably wouldn't make this list for me except for Shane Black's involvement because I'm a pretty huge Kiss Kiss Bang Bang fan. And while he, you know, this is the guy who in the 90s wrote some of the screenplays that sort of set the template for the modern action comedy that we know and love. He's a sharp guy. He's a sharp screenwriter and proved with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang that he was a sharp director. Though since then, he didn't really get a chance to do anything else because that movie couldn't have possibly made any less money. But reuniting with Downey uh, in that role that he owns and knows back and forth and what looks to be you know another fun big budget ride from marvel following their greatest success who would not want to see it i guess you ever heard of lethal weapon Corey? i have heard of lethal weapon you ever been kicked in the chest (laughs) like i said the template for the modern action comedy okay well moving on this is sort of moving more into the fall and winter territory maybe unless this is a late summer release i don't have a calendar in front of me I've always liked Ron Howard's movies. Mm -hmm. I think he's a good director. Sometimes great in some cases. I'm really pumped to see this movie Rush that he's making. It's a Formula One movie, right? Yeah, Yeah. with Chris Hemsworth and Daniel Brühl. Oh, okay. I like From Inglorious Bastards. It sounds sounds really good. It's written by Peter Morgan, who, of course, is responsible for... He wrote Frost Nixon, right? Yeah. And he wrote The Queen. Yeah, he also wrote Hereafter. So let's not go rush into well coronate Peter Morgan is is a guy behind like some like nothing but great stuff. I mean, I love the Queen, but I'm not a fan of Frost Nixon. But yeah, I think Rush sounds pretty cool to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, you know, Formula even though racing, even though Olivia Wilde is in it, I won't okay. hold it against it too much. But I like Chris Hemsworth, like Ron Howard, even though the dilemma was a piece. Yeah, it was. But anyway. How about from your list right now? Well, in May, IFC Films will be releasing the new film from Noah Baumbach, which is always uh, something to look forward to, called Francis Ha, another film that premiered at the Toronto Film Festival last year. Uh, This one stars Greta Gerwig. It's apparently very low budget, black and white, something that was sort of announced all of a sudden by Baumbach. Uh, Nobody really knew he was working on something until it was announced for the festival as being completed, but it got some of the best reviews of that festival, and while I've been a fan of pretty much everything Baumbach has done, you know, the words return to form were bandied about, and, you know, I'll I'll see anything he does, but the the fact that even some of his skeptics were really excited about Francis Ha has led me to be a lot more excited about it than I probably was. I love Noah Baumbach, and I've liked all of his movies that he has made, especially Especially since Squid and the Well and Onward. Yeah. You know, I, I loved Greenberg. I thought that that was pretty underrated and was forgotten about. You want to talk about underrated and forgotten about, if not outright loathed, Margot at the Wedding. It's great. It's, it's great. It's so, it's really good. Yeah, it's a shame people were really sort of... People had like a violent reaction toward that film. No, it's for good. For no reason. It's good. Sort of staying in the, the indie realm. 
this movie, The Place Beyond the Pines, yeah, which is from the director, writer-director of Blue Valentine. Derek, is it Sion France? Or? Sion France. The trailer was released in the past month or so, and it looks really good. It looks really interesting. It's about a deadbeat dad turned bank robber, Yeah, played by Ryan Gosling, and the cop on his trail, played by Bradley Cooper. I'm interested to see how this guy follows up Blue Valentine, mm-hmm. which makes you feel horrible when you One watch it. One of my it. favorite films of 2010. I don't think I'll revisit it anytime soon. No, but I mean the fact that he's following that up with like what sounds like a bank robbing movie but doesn't really look like well, one. It's like a multi-generational story from yeah. what I hear. You know, it also has Dane DeHaan who's this up and coming young actor uh, who's in Chronicle and, and made a big impression on me in that film from last year. So uh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I'm with you there though. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. How about the Sin City sequel? Yeah. Eh? I don't know. I mean, like, I tried to revisit the 2005 film, the first film, uh, not too long ago, and I don't know that it holds up. The Mickey Rourke segment does. Yeah. It's incredible to me. And that was the main reason I, I would just continue to sort of champion that movie based on that and how it was made. It's just fascinating. I, You know, I took a really long look at the DVD extras uh, where they released this brick DVD of it. And it's really fascinating how they made the movie. And I give it a lot of credit for that. But the two stories after Mickey Rourke's in that movie are pretty... The one with Clive Owen and the one with Bruce Willis. Yeah, they're just okay to me. But they still look great. And they're just... That movie wasn't just slapped together like a lot of... Robert Rodriguez's stuff no, is. I, I agree, but I think that the digital look for it doesn't really hold up anymore. I, I have that on Blu-ray, and, yeah. and there's something about it, something about the visual look, you know, while being as stylized as, as it is, when, when it's not just like the silhouettes or anything, that's that stuff is cool, but the something about the way it's filmed doesn't really strike me as visually appealing anymore. But but technology has changed in the eight years since the first film was, was made, and, and there's a possibility that this will be fun. There, there's, I also kind of have like this weird thing with Frank Miller, where I was a big fan of Frank Miller in high school, and like then I'd feel like I matured as an individual, and and Frank Will- Frank Miller just didn't. So I, I don't I don't know. Like you grew out of it. Yeah, I kind of I kind of feel like I did in some ways. There's something about like there's something about that mindset that that rubs me the wrong way now. I don't know. I just think because Sin City was such a unique experience. Yeah. I'm willing to give the next one another chance, especially since Mickey Rourke is coming back. Yeah, it's got. I mean, it, it, these movies. I mean, the first film certainly had a really appealing cast. This one seems to be reuniting everybody from that film, along with, like, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, which is never a bad thing. No. So, yeah, I mean, I'll certainly see it, and I'll probably get more and more pumped for it as it gets closer. But but for now, it's like I'm, I'm still kind of on tenor hooks about it, I guess. Well, as there is with every year, there's a new Woody Allen movie coming out. Yeah, I don't know when, but I guess it, it'll be coming soon. And, again, the cast will just knock your socks off. Reuniting with Sally Hawks uh, or Sally Hawkins from your favorite movie ever, Cassandra's <laughs> Dream. Uh, but she was really good in that. By the sure, way, sure she was. Kate Blanchett, you know, of course. Alec um, Baldwin, Peter Sarsgaard, Michael Emerson, Louis C.K. Yeah, Louis C.K. is the Andrew Dice Clay. Okay, well, that's something. I trust him. I I trust Woody. Like, and it takes place in San Francisco. After listing all those New Yorkers, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's interesting. So I, I'm pumped. Can't wait, yeah. as always, for we'll a see. new Woody Allen movie. Yeah, you're really down on Woody Allen right now. No, I'm not. Which is unfortunate. I just, 
Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no. Uh, just to roam with love was not one of my favorite things ever. But moving uh, on. Uh, it'll be th- fine. There's a new Paul Greengrass movie. Yes, there is. And I actually, um, Paul Greengrass is a director who everything he does is an event. And I, the I, Green Zone was an event for you. It was an event until I saw it, <laughs> and then uh, it became less of it. Well, it became it was still an event, but it was one that I probably should have liked to have avoided. Tell us what you know about Captain Phillips. I don't know much, but it's a fact based story about uh, the captain of of a ship that's overrun by Somali pirates. Uh, the captain's played by Tom Hanks, who uh, appears to be headed for a pretty significant rebound year this year with that and his uh, film Saving Mr. Banks which comes out right around Christmas, in which he plays Walt Disney in, no doubt, a ploy for a Best Actor nomination. Well, Uh, But Tom Hanks plus the dynamism of Paul Greengrass seems like a weird combination to me, but I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing what uh, results uh, from it. Me too. But, well, look, I mean, you said John Lee Hancock is directing this Walt Disney movie, and that's a little bit of a warning sign. In terms of the overall quality we might get from that movie, but I mean, look, I like The Blind Side like I like Silver Linings Playbook. It's a good comparison. <laughs> yeah, so it's maybe I'll maybe I'll really like it too. You never know. I know something that you're super pumped for that you haven't mentioned yet, and maybe you were saving it, but I'll go ahead and throw it out there. Okay. Edgar Wright has a new movie out. Yep. This year, this movie called The World's End. It is. Nothing is known about it except the people who are in it, and the people who are in it are awesome. Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. Yep. They're in it. Martin Freeman? Yeah, and and regardless of who else. Patty Considine? Yeah, but just stick with Edgar Wright, Simon Pegg, and Nick Frost for now. Oh, yeah, I'm sold. Yeah, has it worked up to this point with that combination? Yeah, I think so. So we're there. Let's just say that. Yeah. Big fan of those guys. Big fan of of this film. You know, despite not really knowing what it's about, but um, <laughs> you're just a big fan of it already. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, four stars. I've already written the review. Yeah, but, but I, I, I do like check in the morning. I do like Patty Considine being in this, and I don't know how obviously how big his role is, but he stole the show in Hot Fuzz. Yeah, he's to me. really funny. In he Hot was Fuzz. so funny in that. So I hope they give him a lot more to do. We talked about Ridley Scott earlier. His movie The Counselor comes out this year. It sure does. With a cast that includes Brad Pitt. Michael Fassbender and Javier Bardem. The selling point, though, is the screenplay, an original work by Cormac McCarthy, not based on one of his novels, an original screenplay by him. Unusual. uh, Directed by uh, Ridley Scott, who, as we said during uh, our discussions of Prometheus, is only as good as his scripts. He's a consummate visual stylist, but he'll be dragged down by a bad script, and Cormac McCarthy is not going to provide him with a bad script, and that cast is not going to let him down, so bring it on. Well, you mentioned Brad Pitt and Michael Fassbender, and there is a project that is listed as being in post-production and something that should release in 2013 it's the new film from steve mcqueen the director of shame and hunger this film called 12 years a slave yep. which stars those guys benedict cumberbatch is in it i didn't know that and listed here now quavinjane wallace and white henry they're both and white henry oh god paul dano is listed in the cast that's not good paul giamatti michael kenneth williams who nice. people know as omar from the wire of yeah. course or chalky white and chawaitel ejiofor I think he's the lead, actually. Yeah, so that's quite a cast. It is. And And Steve McQueen, his first two films are powerful experiences, to say the least. They are, and I I actually just rewatched shame recently and i feel just as bad this time as i did the first time you know i I don't i don't know that i love that movie but there's just there's something about it and there's something about steve mcqueen's filmmaking that i can't get enough of despite it being 
generally a feel-bad experience. He's kind of a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, I think so. I yeah. think that's a fellow who people are going to, they're going to know his name. If not after this film, then who knows when, you know, but he'll he'll keep cranking them out. If they're at the same level of hunger and shame, people are going to take notice. A movie that sounds interesting on paper is this film Monuments Men. With, George Clooney. Yeah, with directing. George Clooney directing it. Grant Heslov is writing it. So if you're a fan of Men Who Stare at Goats, then you're really in for something. But I just want you to listen to this cast. Yeah, this cast is incredible. It's insane. It's Daniel Craig, George Clooney, Matt Damon, Kate Blanchett, Bill Murray, John Goodman, Jean Dujardin, Bob Balaban. Got to throw him in there. Yeah. And it's about, I'll just read you the plot line here. In a race against time, a crew of art historians and museum curators unite to recover renowned works of art stolen by Nazis before Hitler destroys them. Bring it on. It sounds like our friend Ben Stark's wet dream to me. I mean, Clooney directing that group of people <laughs> in a movie like that, it sounds pretty solid to say the least. Yeah. Coming out right in the thick of award season. Yeah, too. it sounds... Really, almost as solid as a Depression-era football movie. Oh, so you you seem to be a little... No, I was there. really super excited about that, too, is what I'm saying. I so, like Leatherheads. Okay. I don't love it, but I like it. I'm just saying. I it's hope, better than Ides of March. I hope this is better. Okay, here's one. This is last on my list here, and it just it's just something that needs to be mentioned. I, I couldn't ignore it when I saw this listed here as coming out. I'm going to see this on day one, I think. White House Down... Oh, God. Which opens in June 2013. Okay. Roland Emmerich directing. Channing Tatum and Jamie Foxx starring. This is about a Secret Service agent, played by Channing Tatum, tasked with saving the life of the U.S. president, played by Jamie Foxx, after the White House is overtaken by a paramilitary group led by, funny thing? led by Jason Clark. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. The funny thing is, a film with almost the exact same premise called Olympus Has Fallen, comes out in March, starring Gerard Butler as the Secret Service agent and Aaron Eckhart as the President of the United States, directed <laughs> by Antoine Fuqua. I'll see the Emmerich version. I'll see both of them. I'll see the Emmerich version. But, but is... how, how funny is it that this has happened yet again? Two dueling films about pretty much the exact same thing. The I'll say the Olympus Has Fallen poster is pretty freaking awesome. Have you seen it? Huh. Yeah, that's pretty good. Morgan Freeman, huh? That. Morgan Freeman, huh? Yeah, he was in Deep Impact, so yeah. he's so, uh, he's so been he's, in, he's, he's been around stranger. the block before. So that does it for me. Is there anything else you want to toss out there? My most anticipated film of the year didn't come up, which is what probably made it onto my list last year too. It's um, Alfonso Cuarón's follow up to Children uh, of Men, Gravity. Okay. Uh, science fiction space survival film with Sandra Bullock and George Clooney. Uh, by all accounts, a uh, are you, you still you still with us? What, what part? What part made you snore? Was it Children of Men? I'm sorry, which is incredible. I'm sorry, keep going. Yeah, was it Sandra Bullock? No, it was. At least, yeah, at least it'll make me feel good. Uh, this yeah. is going to be one of the heartwarming, sure, films of the year with a, a director, the mastery of craft as Alfonso Cuarón has with this, this story about two astronauts stranded in space after uh, something goes terribly wrong. With what I've heard, features some really lengthy single shots of space carnage and like twenty minute long shots of action and unbroken takes. I, I love Alfonso Cuarón's previous films. Children of Men is is a masterpiece, and something like this working in this sandbox again, I'm I'm all for it. But you know, by all means, keep keep snoring. You know, you be skeptical if you want to. That's fine. What? 
We'll see. We'll see how great it is. Right. It's going to be super great. Can't wait. Yeah, super sure, pumped. Sure, sure, sure. Super pumped. That does it for 2013. We can already close the books on it. We let's, know it's look ahead. We, next show, most anticipated of 2014. <laughs> we know what we're going to like. We've already written our reviews. Yeah, actually, next films. show, top 10 of uh, top 10 films of 2013. I'm ready. I'll do that before my 2012 yeah, list. There you go. On this show. Just and do it sight unseen. We'll be getting to that soon. Our best of the year is coming up. To so have a few more to go. Corey feels good about 2012. Are there any movies you haven't seen? Yeah, there are. 2012. I mean, it's it's kind of hard to see everything. Well, I just mean that you feel bad about not seeing before you made your list yeah i mean holy motors is a big one I really do want to see that something tells me that something that insane probably stood to uh, make a big impression on my list of course there are a ton of documentaries that i missed and ton of uh foreign films that i missed but the, the reason i went ahead and did it is because i i feel like i feel like i'm almost there yeah you know, there there's some things that might I, I don't think there's really anything that's going to unseat the top 10 there you know they might they might fall into the honorable mentions but nothing that'll unseat the top 10 okay so moving on to DVDs. This week, one of the um, Academy Award nominees for Best Documentary Feature, Searching for Sugar Man, came out. And I don't really want to say too much about this movie because it's best experienced, I think, uh, going into it blind, which you should do uh, as soon as you hear this, like right now, like go out and find a copy of it because it's amazing. It was my favorite documentary of last year. And while I didn't make my top ten, uh, it was one of my honorable mentions. But it's the sort of thing that I think any fan – of pop music or uh, sort of the iconography built around it we'll find a lot to appreciate with and it's 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 really i mean we talk about feel-good movies we talked about it earlier with silver Lang's playbook this is a feel-good documentary and it's the sort of thing that i think a lot of people are going to really enjoy probably certainly a strong contender for the uh for the award definitely worth checking out another great documentary that's on dvd this week uh, not one that was nominated for the oscar but one that made the short list is bart layton's film the imposter another uh really um sort of has to be seen to be believed uh story that i don't want to describe too much about but check that out it's a true crime story that'll sort of leave your head spinning and a really captivating story as far as the fictional films this week nothing really stands out i'm not really a fan of end of watch which I think a lot of critics really enjoyed for some reason or another. And I'll throw it out as a recommendation by specifying that I think it's a terrible film that's totally insane. But again, speaking of having to be seen to be believed, Lee Daniels' The Paperboy is now out, starring Nicole Kidman, Zac Efron, Matthew McConaughey, and John Cusack. It's nuts. It's bonkers. Totally bananas. Not a good film. In fact, a thunderously misguided film from pretty much start to finish but it's the sort of thing that you just kind of have to see for yourself yeah it's a movie that is also going to play at the bama art house winter film series on march 12th yeah that's right in tuscaloosa so it'll already be out on dvd i'm gonna see it because i love precious so much that i'm willing to see his follow-up to that and uh, I can't wait for his movie after that, too. But just to talk a little bit about the Bama Art House, the next film that's playing next Tuesday on January 29th is this documentary, Brooklyn Castle, which is about Brooklyn junior high school students, their chess team in the midst of a national financial crisis and major public school budget cuts. I've been looking forward to this one. Yeah. Actually, so I've been wanting to see this. Sounds really good. I hear it's really good. Yeah. Did you see the sessions? No, I, I was at the Alabama-Kentucky basketball game. Yeah. So Well, it was a good one to go to, it turned out. The game? Yeah. 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 I, I, seriously, it came down to... Do I want to go to the Alabama Kentucky basketball game or see the sessions? You know, yeah. It was a t it was actually a much tougher choice 
than you might think. Well, I mean, I don't think that anybody really expected that basketball game to amount to much, and then it did, which was nice. It, look at the, you're wearing the Alabama hat, man. Don't give up on the tide. I I didn't. I watched it on television. <laughs> I didn't go to the game. And but, you had already uh, seen the sessions, and I'd already seen the sessions. Okay, which comes out on DVD on February twelfth, I think. So okay, not much of a wait for that. We've got a couple of parting shots here from our friends from filmnerds.com, so we'll let them take it away. This is Graham Flanagan, live in New York for Aspect Radio and filmnerds.com. Well, we all got the big news yesterday that J.J. Abrams will be directing the next cinematic installment of the Star Wars franchise. Presumably, it'll be called Episode 7. But who knows, this guy is known for making prequels and rebooting series, so who knows? I mean, we might get a continuation of the original trilogy. We might see a reboot with younger versions of Luke Skywalker and Han Solo. Maybe a prequel to the original trilogy that takes place after the prequels that George Lucas made. Who knows? We have absolutely no idea what to expect. Except for one thing that we can all count on 100%, lens flare. Okay. I'm not going to say anything else about lens flare. I look forward to J.J. Abrams' incorporation of his signature lens flare in the Star Wars canon. As we all know, a lot worse things have happened. See the three films that were made between 1999 and 2005. A couple of things that, that have already crossed my mind here, other than you know the, the speculation on who are the characters going to be, where can he take the story from here, are, of course, his potential uses of familiar characters. Like, are we going to see the Ewoks? Are we going to see, is Mark Hamill going to return in some form or fashion? One thing that I mentioned to Ben on Gchat was the possibility of J.J. Abrams, who also now is the shepherd of the Star Trek franchise, will he perhaps drop a reference to the Star Trek universe into his Star Wars film? Like, could there be a random aside reference to the Romulans or the Klingons? A lot of people think that that might cause a disturbance in the Force, but I think that, honestly, it might be a fun thing to do that would just really get people excited. And honestly, if that happened, if J.J. Abrams made that sort of reference in his new Star Wars movie, I would be totally fine with that, as long as it was done in a nice, subtle, smart, funny way. I'm not saying we need to have Luke Skywalker decapitate a Klingon, although that would be pretty cool as well. I'm excited, and you got to give it to J.J. Abrams, because this has to be the highest pressure intense job that any director has ever taken on i mean i can't even imagine the pressure this guy must be feeling i mean i'm sure he's going to just kind of sit back and enjoy it but he's going to have to reinvent his style again he's not going to do this in the star trek style it can't look anything like that and it can't be a hundred percent beholden to the star wars film grammar that was established by george lucas and, and kirshner and Markand. this is going to have to be something old yet new it's really exciting for a film fan i honestly feel like jj abrams has the potential to make this really special michael arndt is reportedly writing the screenplay to the first film and that's promising because i'm, I'm speaking based more on toy story 3 where this guy just kind of jumped in and really put an exclamation point on that trilogy with what i feel you know could be the best of the toy story franchise 
franchise. So who knows what we can expect from Michael Arndt, but that's promising. That's a smart move. I'm very excited about it. I want to find out who's going to score the new Star Wars movie. Is it going to be Michael Giacchino? Is it going to be John Williams? Is it going to be a combination of the two? I mean, this is all over the place. I'm all over the place right now just because it's exciting. It was exciting when Disney made their announcement that they acquired the Star Wars franchise, and this is exciting. I'm not the biggest Lost fan. I'm a I'm not an Alias fan at all, but J.J. Abrams is a guy that obviously has potential, and I think so does this series. Hey, this is Craig in Nashville. Jack Lemmon had this really obnoxious way of acting about him. Even in the tiniest, meaningless, most minuscule piece of dialogue, he would make about seven different facial expressions, ending with a wide-eyed, goofy glare, sort of working as a billboard-sized cue for his counterpart to respond. I would like your honest opinion. Okay. Jack Lemmon would squeeze all of the juicy sweetness out of every line and even managed to pound some more sugariness into them with a waving of his arms and the empty smiles and the fake laughs and the shaking of the head. But when I get such a dose of all that Jack Lemon sugary sweetness, I crash. It's so weird because he was one of the top actors of his day and his movies are really great, but he's got this delivery that couldn't be more ostentatious if it was giving an acceptance speech and was named Anne Hathaway. He's not so bad in everything. Heck, he's not bad in anything. But I could go on for days about my Jack Lemon pet peeves. In the apartment, Jack Lemon made having a cold look so ridiculous that I wanted to slam my TV on the ground. Lemon sets my teeth on edge. I see Brian Cranston as a modern-day Jack Lemon, and this comparison is most clear in Breaking Bad, but unlike Jack Lemon, it's the things that Brian Cranston doesn't do that annoys me like not beating Homeland at everything. Where Lemon's laying it on thick works for me is in Glengarry Glen Ross, where Jack Lemon plays a pathetic salesman, and those annoying mannerisms work perfectly for this devastating character. Listen, Jack Lemon was not a bad actor, but I can't tell you that watching him doesn't make me want to break things. The comedic struggle of it all is exhausting. I sympathize with your problem. Believe me, I'm very sorry. Well, it's too late now, isn't it, Jack? Well, that does it. You can check us out on Twitter at Aspect Radio. Like us on Facebook. You can find us by searching Aspect Radio. Go to aspectradio.tumblr.com. You can read me on al.com and Corey on tus205.com where you will find his top 10 films list of 2012. Yeah, we've got that. We've got a, a spring film preview going up tomorrow. So by the time you hear this, you should be able to find that too. And always go visit filmnerds.com. And you can hear the latest episode of Cinematrimony hosted by Matt and Francesca Scalisi where they talk about Les Miserables. And it will be spoilerific. So if you haven't seen the films these folks talk about, don't listen to their podcast. I think you and I should talk about Les Miserables. Um, <laughs> but the onus yeah. is on you, friend. Yeah, it so, is. Uh, yeah, we'll see if that ever happens. But until next week, I'm Ben Flanagan. And I'm Corey Kraft. This is Aspect Radio. Thanks for listening.